The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with the president of Wellgreen Platinum, Greg Johnson. Wellgreen trades on the TSX as WG. And on the OTCQX is WGPLF. Wellgreen has just released their 2015 Preliminary Economic Assessment Report, and we'll talk about that. Then I'll speak with Anna Marnett, Chief Marketing Officer for Noblest Health, trading on the TSX as NHC. We'll round out the program this week with writer, producer, and comedian Susan McIntosh. Evidently, enduring some discomfort in life is one of the keys to potential success, and we'll discuss that. Let's begin the program. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. under the ticker symbol WGPLF. Wellgreen Platinum is a North American mining, exploration, and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM nickel copper project and taking it toward production. Located in the Yukon, the Wellgreen project is one of the largest undeveloped PGM or Platinum Group metals deposits outside of South Africa and Russia. Greg, welcome back to the program. Well, it's great to be back. Well, Green just released a preliminary economic assessment technical report. It's extensive. In fact, it can be downloaded in its entirety as it's posted on the top of the homepage to your website, wellgreenplatinum.com. To summarize, though, what does this report essentially mean for the company? Well, I think many of your listeners, if they're not as familiar with the mining space, may be familiar with similar types of businesses where we go through these various studies and engineering concepts to to get to a product that's up and producing cash flow. So kind of like a a biotech, if you will, phase one, phase two, phase three. We've just published a study that documents the economics and the production level of our project that we then take on to the next two levels of engineering to get to a feasibility and make a financing and construction decision on bringing it to market. And so this is a pretty exciting development. It's a second engineering study that's been done on the project. We more than doubled the size of our resources last year on the project area. So huge development in taking the uh, understanding on our total metal in the ground. So that's platinum, palladium, nickel, copper, and, and some other metals all in an open pit deposit. And what this study shows is not only is this a very large system that has you know, excellent infrastructure up in the Yukon, paved highways, and existing ports, but because of the nature of the deposit and the high grades right at surface, we're able to use open pit mining, which is our lowest cost type of mining, to develop this at relatively modest capital investment. And this could potentially become the second largest platinum producer in North America after Stillwater and could be the third or fourth largest nickel project as well. So it's really quite exciting to have these new numbers coming out and and to see the the project evolve in the direction that we've seen. I'm looking at your corporate presentation, which once again is available on the homepage of wellgreenplatinum.com, and it easily opens as a PowerPoint. It's very extensive as well, yet easy to scroll through 
and understand. Taking a look at slide 26 showing a comparison chart with potential peer companies in the space. Companies like Hudbay, Stillwater, Lundin, New Gold, Agnico Eagle, Impala, etc. With Wellgrain not being in production currently and with its present small market cap, when attention again returns to the sector and heads towards the final stages of beginning production and then producing, this could be what we in the journalist space like to refer to as a potential 10 or 20 banger. Now I said that. You didn't say it, Greg. Explain to our audience, if you will, the mechanism for something like that to take place. Well, if you take a look at the chart that you're referring to, it's it's basically showing how much cash flow or EBITDA is the technical term, operating cash flow before taxes. And if you look at that and compare the producing companies, you get a pretty good sense of what the market valuation, if you will, for the amount of cash flow you produce. So you know, sometimes we see that shown as price per earnings and other types of metrics. And you know, this particular chart is highlighting other well-known names, I listed some of them in the mining space. And it shows that these are companies that have billion, two billion, three billion dollar valuations. And some of them are even larger. And when you look at what this study that's just been posted on Wellgreen shows, is that this is an asset that has the potential to generate more than $300 million a year in operating cash flow or, or EBITDA. And so once up in producing, a company like that would likely have a market cap in excess of a couple of billion dollars. And so you do the math with a $50 million market cap today, that difference in value is kind of that potential upside that an investor may see if we're successful in advancing the project over the next couple of years to feasibility and then building the mine and bringing it into production. So it's a couple of years out. We're clearly in that growth phase. But it just highlights what a significant asset the Wellgreen Platinum deposit is in terms of its ability to produce cash flow. And one of the things that's also highlighted in the study is it doesn't just produce that cash flow for just a couple of years, but this mine has, in the base case, a 25-year mine life. And under the kind of upside opportunities that were identified in the study, it shows that we may be able to either continue at that level of production for another 20 years by mining deeper into the existing resource or expand production. And under some of those scenarios, you could see as much as nearly a half a million ounces a year of platinum and palladium production from this asset, which would make it one of the very largest in the world. I'm doing some math in my head right now, and based on what you just said, I'm coming up with a broad figure of the well-green asset being worth anywhere from 6 to $10 billion over the course of its mine life. Based on the math, so what your comparison that you're doing is you're saying, well, what's a company out there like New Gold or Lundin Mining or Stillwater trading at? And those companies, on average, are trading at 14 times earnings on an enterprise value per cash flow or EBITDA basis. And so when you take Wellgreen and you say, our average from our base case is $300 million a year in cash flow, if it was 10 times earnings and so not as high as the average, you'd be looking at about a $3 billion company. We still have to continue the engineering studies. We have to build this mine and bring it into production before you would get that type of value. You're clearly not going to trade at that today, but that is a reasonable estimate for what the Wellgreen asset might look like once it's up in production in a few years down the road. Have PGMs previously been of interest to the investing community? PGMs are quite interesting because of this scarcity component. Many people aren't aware that 80 to 90% of the world's platinum and palladium come out of either Southern Africa or Russia. So there's a very, very strong concentration in fairly high political risk countries for the world's platinum and palladium. And the main uses for platinum and palladium, besides many people are aware of jewelry and investment and coins, is catalytic converters for automobiles, the things that have helped clear the skies over Los Angeles by implementing that technology in their cars, that metal, the catalytic metal that's in your exhaust pipe is made of platinum and palladium. And that's really been the big driver in terms of use of these metals 
since really the mid-1980s, but many people are concerned about the, the supply. Where is that metal going to come from? Where is the growth? And surprisingly, many people are not aware that even though the demand has continued to grow pretty much year on year since the mid-80s, that supply has been falling the last eight to 10 years, particularly out of South Africa and Russia. And so it's set up this near kind of perfect storm for higher potential prices in the future where the supply is not meeting total demand and those markets are in deficit. In other words, the global demand is using more metal than is mined every year. And so at some point, either we have to see new mines come on stream or we're going to see those metal prices go higher and, and potentially significantly higher. I have to ask you this question. Even though platinum and palladium may in fact be the original so-called green metals due to their use in catalytic converters going back to the 70s, doesn't the advent and market growth of hybrid technology in automobiles offset the potential upsurge for use of these metals? Well, as the industry has evolved and technology improves, we've been seeing a process where the amount of platinum and palladium used in a catalytic converter has gone down as they've improved their design. But as the environmental standards have risen, the amount of catalytic activity you need has gone up. So on balance, we've seen about a 4 to 5% global increase in demand year on year. So that's going to be a combination of population growth, more automobiles, and higher standards. And most analysts see that the continued growth in demand, particularly out of the developing world for automobiles, the fact that we're going to be implementing catalytic converters on large vehicles, the trucks, the diesel trucks, which use even larger catalytic converters, and that some of the future technology like fuel cells demands even more platinum and palladium for the catalytic activity in those vehicles, leads one to believe that we're going to continue to see growth in these metals for the foreseeable future, and that even with other technologies that might not use as much, you got more units out there, so effectively that's likely to continue. You touched on Russia and Southern Africa earlier. What kinds of issues do you have in those areas that we just don't see in the Yukon jurisdiction? Well, you know, the big concerning always in mining is if you put all this time and investment and capital into the ground to build a mine, you don't have the ability to move your mine anywhere. It's where the deposit is. And so can you make that investment and can you continue to run your business without it being expropriated or being shut down because of taxes or labor disputes or lack of energy? These are all issues that the mining industry faces globally. The Yukon is such a mining-focused jurisdiction. Resource development is the business in the north. It's their number one GDP component. Our project enjoys fantastic infrastructure. We have a paved highway, the Alaska Highway, that goes past the project, and two existing ports in southern Alaska that we'll be able to utilize for shipping our products. So we've got one of the best jurisdictions in the world, Canada, for mining, one of the best jurisdictions within Canada, and great First Nations or Native partnership on the project and very strongly supported in terms of for mineral development. So it really is a great jurisdiction for us to be developing our project in and should allow us to move this thing through the permitting process and and bring it to market on a timely basis. Let's address members of our listening audience that have not involved themselves in mining concerns previously and are quite simply put investors looking for opportunity across many sectors, having done well in biotech perhaps or tech stocks in general. And then let's also speak to those folks that have been burned in the past with regard to mining investments. Why should we take a look at a mining company right now and or a stock? What about the cyclical nature of metals? And again, I'm going to reference a chart on page 31 of your corporate presentation. I think one of the first points if you're looking at the sector is to remember mining is the ultimate in cyclical industry. But what does that mean? We go through these metal price cycles. There have always been cycles. There always will be cycles. And these are periods in which the metal prices, because of supply-demand dynamics, 
go up, and then during depressed periods go down. And what happens during those periods is small companies, large companies, development stage companies, exploration companies all reflect where you are in the cycle. This presents a tremendous opportunity for investors who are, maybe they've done very well in certain sectors, they're looking to rebalance their portfolio, they're looking for things that are low-priced on a fundamental basis. And when the mining cycles go through these extreme lows like we are in right now, this current cycle, as shown on the chart that you mentioned, is one of the longest and deepest in the last 30 to 40 years. So the valuations, whether you're looking at large producers or or mid-sized companies or growth companies like ourselves, are all extremely depressed, particularly the development stage companies are down 75 to 90 percent over the last four to five years of this bear market cycle. Historically, what we see as you come out of the bottom of that cycle, as metal prices get to their trough levels, which we've seen here for the last couple of years, is we see that this is a sector that can see 200, 300, even 400 percent gains off of those lows over the next up part of the cycle. And because of the length and depth of the current cycle that we're in, many analysts are are looking out and saying the next cycle will be coming. And we don't know precisely the timing, but we can look back to say that historically, the other side of this cycle can be quite generous for investors. And if you can position yourself into high quality names at these attractive levels, this is one of those once-in-a-decade type buying opportunities for people to be looking at for the mining space. Can a company like Wellgreen, with one of the largest PGM projects in North America, in fact lead the sector when attention comes back to the sector? Definitely, there are many of these times, I've been through about three of these cycles in, in my career, there's many times where we'll see the development stage names because we tend to be bigger swings in price than what you see with the, the producers who are more stable. They still go through these dramatic compression and rebound pricing, but oftentimes because because it can be more extreme for the pre-production companies such as ourselves, we'll see that these high-quality development stage names can lead the next swing in the market. But at this point, there's not a lot of enthusiasm out there. I think this is still one of those periods in which you just quietly pick away build positions at attractive prices. And then what can be surprising is how quickly the market can then move to the upside once that sentiment starts to swing, once we start to see the metal prices kicking in and moving into higher levels. And at the current prices for copper, under $3 a pound, for gold in the $11, $1,200 range, platinum in the $11, $1,200 range, these are dramatically below their previous high points. And I think great entry levels for, for people to be taking a look at in anticipation of that next up leg that will come in our very cyclical business. Let's discuss Wellgreen's share structure. It appears to be very attractive. We're quite tightly structured, particularly for the size of our resource and our asset. We've got about 112 million shares outstanding. So that means you get a lot of exposure to pounds of nickel and ounces of platinum and palladium in our projects. Typically, what we see uh, in a development stage name like ours, we have some charts in, in the presentation that highlight this, is as you move into phase two to phase three, in other words, PEA to pre-feasibility to feasibility, we typically see the market revalue these companies as you de-risk them and become moving closer towards cash flow. So if we look at trading values today to give an indicator of that, the producers are trading at around $200 of enterprise value or their market value per ounce of gold that they have or platinum that they have in the ground. The average advanced development stage company is trading at around $50 an ounce in the ground. So you can see it trades at a steep discount to what it would be in production. And then the earlier development stage where we currently are averages around $20 an ounce on the ground. So that progression as you advance takes about a year or two for each stage, you know, demonstrates that the market pays more as you 
get closer to cash flow and ultimately when you get into production. For Wellgreen today, we're trading at about $4 an ounce if you don't include our nickel and copper. We're trading at about $2 an ounce if you include the base metal value. So very attractively valued at this point for a high-quality asset in a low-risk political jurisdiction. And based on my experience at, at Nova Gold and with the other companies I've been involved in, and over the next couple of years as we check off these boxes and finish these studies and advance the company toward construction decision, you would typically see that same kind of pattern of revaluation as we advance towards production and ultimate cash flow. Speaking of the next couple of years, Greg, what kind of news flow can we expect? Well, it's going to be an exciting year for us. Uh, This is our year of pre-feasibility studies, and so refining the studies that went into this updated economic assessment that we just posted. We will be looking to kick off drilling here in the next month or two on the project, so there's going to be a lot of steady news coming out of that. We're undertaking new studies looking at opportunities to improve the recovery of our metals. So I expect we'll be announcing updates along the way on that. And then we'll be looking to bring in the rare PGMs into the resource, as well as looking at updating the resources globally in terms of being able to prepare to put the first proven and probable reserves on this project, probably in the first half of next year. Well, Greg, I sincerely appreciate the update on Well Green Platinum. Thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to further updates as you have them on this program. It was great talking with you again. Thanks a lot for having us. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Wellgreen Platinum, trading on the TSX as WG and on the OTCQX as WGPLF. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Anna Marnett is the Chief Marketing Officer of Nobles Health Corporation, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC. Noblest Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, with the mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower cost for health care delivery. Noblest, under its previous name Northstar Healthcare, recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized health care services in seven states. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Glad to be here. Give us an idea, if you will, of your background as it relates specifically to marketing. My entire professional background has been rooted in direct-to-consumer marketing and sales, and really that started during college, but my first job out of college was with a national investment management company, and there we marketed direct-to-consumer and B2B as well services that the company offered. From there, I joined a national physician search firm called Merritt Hawkins and Associates. We are the nation's largest physician search and consulting firm. And that entire business was built around a direct to physician marketing as well as facilities. And we consulted with facilities and physician groups across the country. And from experience I learned throughout those years in marketing, specifically direct marketing, I started two real estate investment and finance companies, all built around generating leads directly from consumers. And so it's a pretty broad industry base that I come from, but I've been able to bring that knowledge along with some of my 
passed healthcare knowledge into Nobilis Healthcare. What was the deciding factor in your decision to focus on healthcare? Part of it was the economy and part of it was I knew the CEO, Chris Lloyd. In fact, at the time, we both had real estate investment companies. The opportunity arose to start the APHIS companies. Chris knew that I had background consulting in healthcare and physician groups along with that marketing experience and so we were able to join forces. How important is branding in your business? That's a great question, Ellis. Branding, I look at it two ways. There's the branding aspect that you see with the large healthcare organizations these days, the Baylors, the HCAs who focus most of their effort on branding. We look at it a little bit differently and focus the majority of our efforts in the direct to consumer messaging. That is clearly our market. That's what our expertise is. And so though the brand comes along with it, we build that brand after the fact, really, as it relates to getting that message out to the consumer to drive them to our website properties. The consumers are out there looking for a solution to solve their specific problem. They're not necessarily looking for the brand first. They're looking to see what is out there that can provide them the solution. The brand is really secondary to that. So it's your goal to ensure that the Noblest brand shows up when patients are doing a search on whatever ailment they may have that you'll be able to service correct? That's exactly right. So when the consumers are searching for us, we spend a large amount of our marketing budget online. When they're searching for those specific solutions to their problems, they're going to find one of our properties. It's not going to be a nobilis focus. It will be the brand name that is built around that solution. How have your marketing efforts changed since the merger? Something that's great about the merger between the two companies is that we had a head start on Northstar from a marketing perspective. We've simply been doing it for longer. And as they acquired us and we brought their brands into our marketing platform, we've been able to integrate it quickly. And since we have an end-to-end concierge model, from the very first time we generate leads, we have a very thorough process where the patients are managed through our system all the way actually past surgery. And so we're able to just plug those brands right into the marketing operations and the sales operations. So we're able to take that expertise and leverage it quickly with those brands. What will patient care and boutique surgical centers look like in the years ahead? What is your vision going forward? It's interesting because there's a continued transformation in healthcare and it's becoming more obvious now and we've seen this for several years now, but there's a continued transformation to patients wanting to have more control. And so when making a decision, patients now use multiple channels and those channels are going to continue to expand and many of those channels are at some point different parts of the organization and so operationally the patient journey demands that brands have to be integrated across multiple functions within a business so you can deliver that coordinated and consistent experience and so that's where we have seen healthcare going it empowers the patient it helps give them a transparent process and we're going to continue focusing on that so we can plug in new brands to our processes that's what I think you're going to see some hospital systems are starting to finally figure out the importance of delivering relevant messages to their customers which are their patients and they've missed that staying the more traditional brand 
finding route for their hospital systems just thinking the patients are going to show up, and that's really no longer the case. And Adam, what's your day-to-day like? What does the Chief Marketing Officer of Nobles do on a regular basis? Overall, as the CMO, I direct all the strategic initiatives for marketing. And so within our organization, the way we structure the team is we have a group of brand managers who report to a brand director. So their day-to-day is to make sure that we're executing on our strategy for each brand. And then running parallel with the brand managers and brand directors are functional groups. So we have an insight team who is constantly doing research on the market. How can we speak very specifically to our patients? Our goal is to communicate one-to-one with the patients. And what I mean by that is each patient has a very specific need. And when they find us, we want to communicate that, assuming we do have a solution, that we are speaking specifically to that individual's need, not an all things to all people. So we spend a lot of time on how can we do this on the front end of our marketing and how can we do that all the way through the process. So the Insight team also helps deliver that content to the patient at various stages. The second functional group there, as far as the team is organized, is the support group from the standpoint of generating the content of copywriters, webmasters, coders for all our web properties. So ultimately, that's how we have it structured. It makes for a very agile marketing team. So when we do bring in a new brand, we can quickly plug that in to that structure and launch it quickly. I've asked this question of other principals in your company. Now I'll ask you, what do you see for an expanded footprint for Noblis outside the areas you currently serve? Most of our growth has been really opportunistic. If we find a facility that makes sense or we have good physician partners that make sense in a location, that can be the driver of it. As we go forward from here, we will more aggressively look to expand that footprint. How marketing relates to that, we're very involved up. Obviously, from a marketing standpoint, there are a lot of people within the organization operationally that help us determine what might be a good market. Moving forward into next year, the expansion of our current brands will be aggressive, and a lot of that growth, too, may come from acquiring new facilities as well. What do you think, in general, accounts for the great success the company has seen? You know, I think looking at the success of what we've been able to build at Athos and the success with the Nobilis facility management and their expertise, they are absolute experts in running facilities, and that blend has really been a great one. But I think that the things from a marketing perspective that are interesting is we've proven that we've been able to build this model that's scalable and repeatable where we can bring in new brands quickly launch them. But just importantly, we've been very measured in building the internal team with the right talent. We have people on the marketing team, the complete integrated marketing team that we've been able to bring over from major national brands in various industries. And that's interesting because you bring talent into the fold that isn't tunnel vision on healthcare, and it helps the team have different viewpoints that you can take advantage of to ultimately build that marketing program. Consequently, that's led to a company culture that is critical, really, to the ultimate success of the company, and so that's been a really fun part of it. Is that a culture that you can spread to the rest of the industry? Or is your way of running your business proprietary? That's a 
great question. Well, one, it's a lot of fun because we, being very patient-centric in what we do, those principles have to start internally, and Chris Lloyd has done a fantastic job helping permeate the organization with really that mindset of we have to have people simply with a great attitude that are here to focus on making sure the patient has the absolute best experience possible. And once you see that in action, it's pretty infectious. And so from there, it is pretty easy, I think, to transfer that to the growth of the organization. I've been chatting with Adam Arnett, CMO of Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, of course, and I'm sitting with my good friend, who I haven't seen in a, a long time, actually, comedian, writer, actor, producer, Susan McIntosh. Welcome to the program. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. What have you been doing the last 20 years? 20? 45 minutes in traffic. Uh, <laughs> I've moved to this wonderful city of Los Angeles from New York. New York is now a pit. A pit of artisan sandwiches, shops, and little boutiques. It is not the crazy rock and roll city I moved to, so hence I have been spit out to the west, the best coast. None of us ever want to go back to New York to live, although we might for a, a few days take it in, enjoy the scenery, a visit with friends, have great food any time of the day or night. But that uh, is true. Why do you think people just come to L.A. and we live and die here? First off, it's so bloody comfortable. The air itself is like the feeling of being in a warm bloodbath. It's tasty, <laughs> 98 isn't it? 98 degrees, man. You don't have to do anything but just <laughs> breathe in and out. You're completely comfortable at all times. You don't have to eat it so thick sometimes there around here. <laughs> Many people don't, as a matter of fact. That's right. You just have to breathe in plasma. It's the low-hanging fruit. Eventually, you get tired of the schlep and running around and the dog-eat-dog, and you simply want some low-hanging fruit. I want low-hanging fruit. It's easy that way. If we actually have to work, God forbid, then we're not going to get our 10-hour sleep. Is it possible, Susan, to get a lot done in four hours or five hours during a day and take the rest of the day and just do absolutely nothing related to work? It's called being French, and I'm French. (laughs) I get up, I write for two hours, I take a hike, I take a nap. I'm like a 75-year-old. I've never been happier in my life. I don't have to get on a subway. I can avoid smelling, wafting sewage smells. I can avoid all kinds of rats, bugs. I don't miss them. Then why is the rent so high in New York City? It's outrageous there. Because you want a little filth. Listen, this is why you go to New York. You go to New York because you want to get out of your suburban nightmare and you want a little filth. Everyone should have a little filth. They should eat a little filth once or twice in a lifetime. It gives you an edge. I grew up in the greater New York area, and uh, every other weekend or so, I'd spend time in the East Village and Times Square, and if you want real filth, you've got to go back about 30, 40 years to get it there. And it was thick. It was exciting. It was recommended by my parents. They said, hey, go out and play. (laughs) Those are cool parents. And I'd go out and play, and if I had some quarters or dollar bills on me, I'd pay my tolls every half block. Right. And and it's just there's no concept of that lifestyle that exists in the country anymore. And people much younger than me just have no idea what it was like back then. It was was filthy. It was gritty. It was exciting. It was fun. It was dangerous. It wasn't watched. There was a feeling that you could – it was a world without your parents watching you. And that was Brooklyn for me the last 10 years as well. Williamsburg, which is now blown up, of course, the show Girls, is filmed next door 
door to my house there, my apartment. And that's even going back to a time a few years ago when things were a lot less discovered and a lot less precious, as it were. You can go into an art loft and have a party till five or six in the morning. You never see a cop when you're walking home. It was a world, basically, it was sort of like a Tom Sawyer world where you can just be on your raft from one crazy adventure to another going downstream. Now there's a pressure because of the, the the rents are so high. There's a pressure not to live that lifestyle. There's a pressure to like have a day job and to be your parents at 25. I think the generation two are certainly they're strivers far more than my generation was. These kids want to make it. They want to make it by the time they're 30. Making it to us was paying the rent and maybe getting an art show somehow somewhere or a painting in something. I think the the pressure of success has ruined New York. It is very sanitary, as in uh, Vegas or any of the shopping malls around uh, Los Angeles, for instance. Uh, Times Square is just full of buy this, buy that. Buy this and buy that. Buy this and buy that. And there's absolutely no culture in that. There's only a corporate culture. Yep. We can certainly go down that road in this conversation. Ah, who needs it? But who needs it? I mean, many people do. And, and really, it's it's a road to personal depression if you take the yeah. art creativity out of life and you're force-fed what you should enjoy and what you should buy every weekend. Well, it's the difference between creating and consuming. I miss a time and place in the city, and it's still there. There's still artists that are making and not just consuming. The emphasis between personal expression and personally creating one's experience versus consuming one's experience, I think that's the divide. Well, how do you think the Internet has turned all this around, if it has at all? Has it made it better? Has it made it worse? Or is it just a combination of both? I think it made it, it made it worse. I think it's very important for people to be bored. I think that bored, with boredom comes the creative spark. You need to not be continuously stimulated in order to create the next experience to stimulate yourself. When you have the ability to look down at your phone, just for instance, you're being in a coffee shop, I'm looking around and everyone's like looking at their phones. It was that pregnant pause, that moment when you could flirt, that moment when you could strike up a conversation, that moment when something unexpected could happen. And now those moments are gone. They just they don't exist anymore. People are now looking downward and focusing their attention on something to satisfy them. Whereas before, people were forced to find satisfaction in the world. So life has become a pornographic metaphor. Yes, we're overstimulated and undernurtured. How about that? The solution to this is what? Some sort of electromagnetic pulse? Yes, let's hope. Let's hope a comet strikes the Earth and just does no damage other than knocks out everybody's cell phones. I mean, I remember New York in the moment there was a blackout, and I think that was 2010, maybe in 2009, and there was no power in the city for three days. It was the most fun I'd had in years because suddenly people were forced. I mean, the the most popular guy in the neighborhood was a guy with a transistor radio. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like the shortwave radio guy. That was the go-to. And it was just the experience of everyone suddenly had the veil down and it was extraordinary and may I say incredibly sexy it was tangibly fun in a way that I think technology in some way with the illusion of bringing us together is actually is an illusion it's it's alienating us what else is on your mind well what is it on my mind I am excited about the fact that I can see a, a, I'm in your wonderful penthouse apartment I look over at the ocean I see this wonderful thin layer of gravy I see when you're in the gravy you don't know you're in the gravy the gravy is for those of you of, that are not in Los Angeles that's the brown part of the air that just skims the surface of this wonderful city you don't really notice it when you're in it 
It's sort of like love. You don't necessarily notice it when you're in it, but you notice it when it's gone. <laughs> what I notice is that I had to take an extra dose of allergy pill this morning due to yeah. that uh, brown goop coming into my nostrils. And we're going to talk weather, I guess. We're going to talk Los Angeles weather because that's what you do here. You talk weather and traffic in L.A. And if, if you're new to this town, you're finding your way around. And if you're visiting, you're seeing it. But if you've lived here forever, it's just part of our lingo. It's part of our conversation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add my part to that conversation by saying that, you know, I don't think we're going to see the June gloom this year from uh, January all the way through July. I don't think it's going to happen. And this gravy you refer to and hot weather is just going to prevail. And may I say, there's also a layer of pollen. <laughs> it's like a light dusting, a fairy dusting of pollen everywhere you go. It's like a Dr. Seuss book or something. Horton hears a sneeze everywhere you go, man. It's unbelievable. I have so many Claritins. I have like one under my tongue, one behind my ear. I'm, I, got, I need a Claritin pouch, I, I swear to God. It's a little extreme. I was wondering why you're not sneezing because I actually. I'm took- so high, is why I'm so I'm jacked up on methamphetamine slash Benadryl. You know, I can't even feel my feet. We should have a camera on you right now. We don't have a camera in the studios here, but you look jacked up. The way your posture is jacked up, your hair's jacked up. <laughs> no offense, I mean it looks great, no, but you're completely, you. no, you're completely physically jacked up right now, and Claritin's supposed to bring you down. Actually, no, isn't I, it? I, I'm shaking like a chihuahua. I, my hair looks like Gene Wilder on a good day. I'm, I'm not hungry, thanks. I've <laughs> Gene Wilder on a good day is what my hair looks like. Susan, we've discussed the air in Los Angeles. We've talked about, actually, New York and what I remember about New York when I was a kid is as much as I enjoyed playing around in the city, I came home with a layer of soot as a mustache every day. Wow. And that's how bad it was back in the uh, the 50s and the 60s. So I, I guess we have some improvement as far as weather is concerned and smog and pollution, but we don't have nearly enough. I want more filth. Filth made it fun. What kind of filth do you want? Well, I like that th- when things are challenging, you know you're alive. I think that's part of my internet experience is that I feel is kind of sad now. Is everything's a little bit homogenized. It's not as edgy and as ex- and extreme as it used to be. Like you said, the, the soot. The adventure of life being not so easy. I think when things are easy, people get complacent and things get a little dull. We like things complicated. I think that's what makes life interesting. You mentioned boredom being a good thing. Yes. And with as many things as I have around here to keep me occupied and to encourage me to have a great time, I'm going through bouts of extreme boredom, which turn into anger, which as a creative type, and I am a creative type, I think is very, very good. Because if I don't get something done, I'm going to be in trouble. And what needs to get done at this point is quantum leaps. Quantum leaps, and you can only get to a quantum leap if you're absolutely fed up. That's right. And anger is, I think it's one of the things that we, especially in the new age of Los Angeles, everyone's very afraid of anger. But I think anger is incredibly important. It is the impetus for movement and for movement forward. You have to be angry. Boredom and anger are important catalysts to change. You have to be able to manage it so it doesn't mess up your life or anybody else's life. You have to really learn how to channel boredom or anger. Should be put it into art. That should be the impetus towards creation. Yeah. I've got nothing. <laughs> You're bored and angry. Way. That's the problem. I think I'm more angry than bored because, again, there's always something to do. What there's... are you angry at? Let's talk about what, what makes you angry. Thank you, Dr. McIntosh. Yes, let's talk about what makes you angry. I feel at this point in my life, I have not accomplished all the things I wanted to do, and I'm yeah. pissed off about it. I get it. I wake up at night thinking those things myself. You, as busy as you are. As busy doing, as I am. Doing what you love every what, day. That, think, I'm very blessed to be in that position. But there always is that, what did I do? And what, what, what road did I not take? And maybe I should have stuck with this or stuck with that. It, there's always those questions. There's always those, those wonders. 
you just don't you don't know where you're going until you're there, and then you're like, oh, was this what it was? Well, this is where I thought I was going. Well, I wasn't really going here. I want to go over there. I think there's a maybe that just is the life process. Maybe that is just living. That's the impetus that keeps us going. That is the impetus that keeps us going and growing and evolving, and mm-hmm. it's a necessary part of our psyche. And to medicate it, which I refuse to do. 90% of the time, to take an antidepressant or some sort of depressant or even a stimulus drug uh, defeats the whole purpose of this gestalt as a creative, getting you to do new things and to achieve, which is human nature. Well, and we need to be uncomfortable. I think that's it, too, that we're not, we've been told so many times that being uncomfortable is something that needs to be either fed or medicated. We don't like to sit in the discomfort. And yet, sitting in the discomfort is actually the place that you grow from. I do believe that. What would be something uncomfortable that you'd consider doing that you really don't want to, but you think potentially might be good for you? Exercise. Get moving. I haven't seen you in a while. You look like you've been exercising. I have, so thank you. You must thank be. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Chasing my tail around in circles. That's that's my main form of exercise. You know, as many gyms as there are here in Los Angeles, when there's a ton of them, uh, and a lot of people use them, a lot of people don't. What I've noticed about exercising, it's a great place to put this anger because yeah. you, you go ahead and you do something for your body and you, you get to live longer, hopefully, and you're propelled into uh, an endorphin rush. It helps you creatively as well. Yep. And I found it to be very, very useful. I I feel like this. it's a waste of, of energy, though. I This is what I want to do. This is my dream. You, you have a gym, right? And each person that's on the treadmill or on the bicycle are somehow charging this giant battery that will then that will then power the entire gym and hopefully the city block. So all those narcissists, myself included, <laughs> all those losers, uh, uh, gym goers, are out there somehow doing good with all that excess energy. Besides masturbation, they're doing something positive for the world. That's a little bit what it feels like too. Is everyone in these isolated little experiences? They're not contributing to the greater whole. If we had more experience. To contribute to something larger than the self, maybe we're powering those giant battery cells. <laughs> and somehow there's a connection to doing not just an individual experience, but a communal experience. Is there any advice you can give to individuals listening to this podcast, to young people around the country, about doing something uncomfortable? Um, and they don't, it doesn't have to be young people. Young people of any age that are really looking to deal with their anger, deal with their boredom, deal with their lack of self-fulfillment, other than exercise as an artist or potential artist, because there's an artist in everybody, I believe. How would you start? That's a very good question. Thank well, you. it's getting out of one's head, and ultimately it's trying to find like-minded people, which is not easy. And our culture is certainly set up to keep us isolated, even in community spaces, which we're supposed to be sitting down and talking to each other. There's very little of that. You'll have a mall, for instance, but there's not a public space without having to buy something where people can't actually sit down and talk to each other. There's, you know, You're forced to be in a continuous loop of shopping. You're not able to actually relate, which is unfortunately part of the uncomfortableness. I think that it's we're in our skin where we have these feelings which are now being channeled into purchase. So if you're uncomfortable, buy something to make you happy. Unfortunately, we've kind of gotten to that cycle. We have to break that first off and realize that being uncomfortable is part of being alive and trying to soothe that uncomfortableness through external objects is a cycle that is basically the treadmill that we're on in terms of the consumption and what our culture is built around, which is continuous consumption of products, which doesn't really satisfy. 
So I think it's really important to do some inward work where you realize that what you are looking for to satisfy yourself is really an external dream and it's external. It's not something that necessarily can actually be satisfied within the self. It has to somehow come out and connect to something else. And this is a a great way to begin that is ultimately through friendships, trying to figure out how to go forward in this world where one does not feel so isolated. Cultivating friendships is a great space to begin. And again, the internet, I think, has removed us from this notion of friendship. We have a thousand friends, but how many people do we really speak with? How many people do we talk with every day? Getting in the discipline of actually picking up a phone and calling somebody. I mean, that's a great place to move out of your uncomfortableness. Actual communication that doesn't involve texting, doesn't involve tweeting. It involves actual conversation, like what we're having. I feel far less uncomfortable now sitting here with you, Ellis. That's interesting. Once again, you've brought up several really, really good points. Nobody really likes to pick up the phone and call anybody anymore. It's too much trouble. We'd rather just text something off and then wind up in a 20-minute text, which would be probably a lot easier facilitated if it were to happen on the telephone. Now, we've stated that the Internet and devices can be a a setback, but on the other hand, if you want to engage with other people, if you want to have conversations, if you want to meet new people, for instance, I've found something to be useful part of the time, not all the time, but I've met a group of musicians here in Los Angeles that I play with on a regular basis, as a matter of fact, in two bands because of something called meetup.com, where you can literally, whatever your passion is or you think it is or you want it to be, you can go there, and I'm not selling meetup. It sounds like I'm selling meat. I guess I am selling it or something like it. You can really select your passion and filter through like-minded people and get together and engage with them, putting away the devices. I found great joy in that. It's a great spot to begin. Absolutely. It's, it's finding like-minded people is extremely important. And the, the problem is, is that when once people leave college, too, they find themselves not having ability to connect to large groups of people. So a meetup is, is sort of like taking a college class and another experience. And that's a wonderful place to begin. Absolutely. Extremely important. I also think events like Burning Man, events like I just went to Bequinox, which was an event in Joshua Tree. I think these wonderful, the Burning Man community especially, these are really great places that bring people together that are like-minded people. And it's I found a great deal of joy in my life through these experiences. It forces people out of the comfort zone. Quite literally, it puts you into a survival situation where you're completely uncomfortable. And that's part of it. They put you in the middle of a desert. There's a reason why. is to put you into a place that is no longer safe. And you can't feel safe. You can't feel comfortable. You have to feel uncomfortable in order to to test yourself. And that's when the true beginning of who are you. For instance, the last weekend I spent at Bequinox, you know, in our society, we tend to, we have our jobs and they don't really define us generally. Who you really are and who your character is isn't necessarily being exemplified by your desk job or your day job or even your relationships. In these environments where you see people camping and you see people forced into having to survive in a group situation, you start to see what their true personalities are. You see people, all they want to do is gather firewood. All they want to do is talk. All they want to do is help build stuff. All they want to do is cook. All they want to do is go dance. All they want to do is run away from responsibility and that they have to face the fact that they have no tent. You see all these kinds of behaviors that eventually, you hope, 
will start to contribute to someone's larger understanding of the self and start to really figure out what path they, sh- they need to be on. Are they helpers? Are they provocateurs? Are they comics? Are they clowns? What is your true inner self? If you had the ability not to have a job and suddenly was part of a tribe, for instance, what function would you serve? This is fascinating. We were talking about the corporate culture and the, and the corporate culture being a, a culture that encourages everyone to buy stuff all the time. During the course of my life, I have struggled with being personally disenfranchised from that corporate culture. And if you're not careful, you wind up being penniless and homeless, and only because you're not buying it. It's, it's quite a fascinating place to be in. And hopefully, like you mentioned, you can find other like-minded people. You can be creative with one another, but then you've still got to earn a living. And it's a really, really tough thing to live as you and I do necessarily for people that, that haven't done it, and that's to be uncomfortable and live on our wits alone, or in my case, half of them, and and to provide a living, to live in a city like New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or San Francisco where it's not cheap, and even Burning Man costs you several hundred dollars to get into oh, if yeah. you can afford that. It's if a you thousand can aff- dollar ride to be uncomfortable. To be uncomfortable, and that's the great escape. When I was a kid, you know, none of that cost anything. You could just be that, and it doesn't cost anything now, but if you want to have group fun on that scale, it's going to cost you, and it's almost corporate in nature. Absolutely, which sort of defies the whole experience of personal independence. Absolutely. And it's it's ironic that you have to pay money to become free. It is an ironic reality that we're in. Yeah, ultimately, I think that we're at a space where people have to figure out ways to alternatively experience life without the corporate structure. Maybe it is alternative small farming communities, but then again, who wants to farm the rutabagas? I mean, that requires a lot of a lot of patience and skill and work. And are we able to do that anymore? I don't know. If the, if the comet came today and struck the planet, how many of us, and took out maybe all the power grids, how many of us could actually figure out how to grow some food? I don't know. I think we don't. I think I would certainly starve. I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, we're really at a place of dependency. And that itself is kind of a scary thought. And that's why the Burning Man stuff becomes so fun, because it is about survival. It's about self-sufficiency, two things we have no idea about. And that, again, of course, after going to Walmart and buying all the things, you then think you're self-sufficient. You didn't make that tent. You bought it. (laughs) It kind of defeats the purpose. And that's what bothers me about all the flyover states. And I'm a product of some of that. I lived in Missouri for a while, for about a year, actually. And part of my thrill is going to Walmart and buying new socks or whatever I could buy. And when I'm in New Mexico, um, if I get a little bored, I might go over to the all-night huge super center and just walk around and look at some new flannel shirts and things of that nature. And really, when I get out of there, I'm looking at all these strip malls and all these miniature high-end malls all over the country that have P.F. Chang's in them and Romano's noodles, or it's just a... Even in Los Angeles, wherever you look, it's it's just buy my shit. It, buy my shit, whatever it is, and it's real, you're taking a beautiful landscape. I don't want there to be a massive earthquake in California. It will happen someday. It will happen, I don't know, next year or in 100 years. But if we have to rebuild ever, I would appreciate it if we do it with some thought and love. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some creativity. I, 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 the thing that I don't have a problem against those stores, the problem I have is that there's the same store. Everywhere I go, it's the same store. I would like to see the the individuality of that town reflected more. Our moms and uncles and aunts aren't going to be owning the candy store down the street that's anymore. Right. That just doesn't happen, and that's sad. It is sad because it's a, it's again it's a connection to the the experience of actually where you live. 
it grounds you. You know your town because you know that candy store. You know that town because you know the people behind the counter. And they've always been there. And they remember you when you were a kid. They remember your family. It connects you to a time and place. I think that's what the Internet's doing. We all feel a little anonymous now. We're not really seen. I think that that's the uncomfortableness, too, is that do you remember my history? It's not on Facebook. Who was there? Who remembers me? That's the odd part about moving out of New York. Cause I spent you know, so many years, the last 10 years, really, in Williamsburg. We created a scene, my friends and I. We created something amazing that's now being uh, parodied on HBO with The Girls Show. And so many of my friends are you know, doing very well with their bands and touring the world. But we all knew each other, and we were there for each other's experience. We're, the feeling is that it's just, we're just anonymous anymore. We're just a click of like. We're a like or a join, or a this or a that, our experience of who we really are as our individual selves feels dissipated. Let's talk about your story as far as how you got into the world of humor and comedy. And the reason why I'm asking you this is not just for a biographic, but it's assisting others that are listening to this program that may be thinking about it. How do you begin? How do you become involved in it? How do you do it? Well, I think it goes to the uncomfortableness when you feel like there is a point where you want to talk back because no one's really saying what you want to say. I think it comes from anger. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the kid that would scream at the television and be like, oh, no, what about that? What about that? And thank God I had parents that encouraged that. I think that's the worst thing. If, if, if a child is, is loud and noxious and difficult, <laughs> they should be encouraged to be follow your bliss. <laughs> so comedians don't come from a comfortable place. No. They don't, and they come. They're generally loud and difficult. <laughs> I can remember my entire. Exp- I mean, all my report cards was like talks too much in class, too loud, too many questions. The other one has no patience, has no self control. No, I don't. Nor should I, because if you do, you know, it's boring. No self control. That's absolutely. I have absolutely none. Thank God. Self control is not that interesting. So at some point, really, it's like walking a tightrope perhaps or surfing you've got to channel this anger you've got to flip it over a molecule into mm-hmm. the fun zone exactly or, or just the desire to it's the chaos principle it's the desire to bounce the ball off the wall really loudly and, and, and disrupt and I think that it's the prankster element that we have to encourage people to hold on to which you know in the new age community you call it the inner child it's really that creature within us that we all have that unfortunately has been this is why school is so difficult though I've been a teacher in my life is it tries to basically rob you of it. It wants you to settle down, keep your head down, and not be disruptive. But we need disruptors in our lives. And somehow, that my dad was a very funny guy, and he was an, a very loud guy. He was an Australian and a very uh, powerful character. And he admired that in me. He thought it was fun and, and really cool. And I thank God for that because you know I think that we tend to be very polite in our society. We want to be smaller than we actually are. And I come from loud, wild, crazy people that were sheep herders, that were you know, wrestling sheep and <laughs> shearing sheep in the middle of the outback. People that could not, were not quiet and would not have survived such a harsh environment if they were. You know, holding on to the things that make us individual as wild characters, I think, is extremely important. Again, that's fascinating that you'd mention that because I, I've traveled, as I'm sure you have and many of our listeners have, all over the world. And the Australians make Americans actually look, they make us seem very, very quiet. 
nonchalant, absolutely contained. And and the Australians that I've met over, I realize this is a, a general statement, but they've been the most rambunctious. They've been the most entertaining. They've been the most rowdy. And Drunk. certain times, I was going to say that <laughs> at nine o'clock in the morning, you can usually find one that that, that has had more than one or two drinks. <laughs> and and is it because of the isolation? Is it because of the environment? Is it because of the harsh conditions? And and I found this to be true. Speaking of sheep, from people from Devon or Cardiff yes. in England, you know, where there are sheep, there's plenty of sheep over there, uh, or, or Scotland for that matter. Funny people are a product of their harsh environment. Yes, I think so. There's a survivor's humor there too. I think that's why Jews are funny because you had to survive so much and keep laughing and keep going on. And the Australians are the same. They were dropped there as convicts in a harsh environment and they had to survive. And how do we survive? We survive because we can figure out how to laugh about it and keep going. Misery doesn't really create enthusiasm for, for getting the firewood and continuing your journey. You have, to, you have to be able to laugh and be able to keep going. I think that's extremely important, to be able to figure out how to survive and how to thrive, which is, at the end of the day, is storytelling. We tell stories about our experience and we keep going. And, and I think that's a, a great place to end this particular segment and a great place to uh, perhaps begin the future segment of our life. Susan McIntosh, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, my friend. You're the smartest guy in town. Again, I've been speaking with comedian, producer, and writer Susan McIntosh. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com and download the entire show on iTunes. That wraps up in a tight little package this week's edition of the Ellis Martin Report. Thanks for joining me. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.